And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. It's straight out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Today, Chelsea pick up their first win of the season in the WSL. We answer your questions and that's about it. It's an international break after all. Available for free wherever you get your podcast and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight Out of Cobham. Here we go then, gang. Back for the first of your twice-weekly dose of Chelsea goodness, courtesy of The Athletic. My name's Matt Davis-Adams. I'm joined today by The Athletic's Chelsea expert, Liam Toomey. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> Liam's had some technical issues, which is why he's not got a, a witty one-liner ready to go. No one-liners today. <laughs> not that kind of day. Uh, Jesse Parker-Humphrey is back with us too. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I am really well, thanks. Uh, I think we all are after what happened at King's Meadow, where yesterday the mood was celebratory. That's where we're going to start today. As Chelsea come forward here, Fleming forcing it through, and it might be in here. Coming! But against the run of play, Chelsea showing why they're champions. Rush around King's Meadow, a big moment in this game. Miora, look at the power behind that one. No stopping that one. Stopping Chelsea, it seems today. Great second half from the team. Really competent, calm in possession. Thought we adapted really well to the challenges of the first half. Lucky to go in one nil at half time, but you know we got quality to put balls in the back of the net. Kept a clean sheet. Scored from a penalty. Better all round performance than last week. Uh, Chelsea 2, Manchester City 0 then. The WSL champs picking up their first W of the season thanks to a Frank Kirby strike and a Marin Mielder penalty. As I say, Jesse witnessed it live. And before we get to the actual game, Jesse, three changes from the side that started against Liverpool and Katrin Berger back in goal. For anybody who doesn't know, just explain the, the magnitude of that. Yeah, so um, Chelsea announced just before the start of the season, just after their summer tour, that uh, Anne Katrin Berger had had a recurrence of a, a cancer problem, thyroid cancer that she'd had previously when, when before she was at the club in Birmingham. And I think at the time, everyone kind of assumed that meant she would be out for quite a while. But amazingly, uh, she made her first start of the season in this game uh, and had a very good game, actually, as well. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic to see her back. You know, obviously great for her personally and great for the club as well. And yeah, I think just amazing that um kind of the wonders of of medicine that you can go and have that treatment and and be back and ready to play so quickly Liam as Jesse said she was brilliant in the game but I mean the the mental fortitude and resilience to be able to come back and play so quickly is is pretty astonishing really it really is and maybe you'd say on some level she would have liked to get back to playing to take her mind off everything she's been through off the pitch, but then there's still the fact of being physically ready to actually play at that level. And not just come into any game, come into a really crucial WSL game after Chelsea have lost on the opening day against a really dangerous Man City team who of course wounded themselves. 
so yeah, it was a it was a big moment, and and she really came through. I I hope that is a sign that things are going better off the field. Obviously, we don't have any right to know beyond what she shares, but I hope it means that that the treatment went well and and everything is is going well with her off the pitch and on the pitch. She absolutely delivered. Uh, elsewhere, Magda Eriksson at left back is that a thing now, Jesse? Was this like a one off experiment? How did she do? Well, I mean. She's done it before. She's done it for Sweden before. It's not really something we've seen her do for Chelsea. But yes, they mass confusion. Chelsea did play a back four. I've seen this put in various different places, but it was Magda at left back and Marami Elder at right back. And I thought she had a really good game, to be honest. I think when the lineups came out, I was like, oh, it's definitely a choice because you've got to say City's threats are kind of Lauren Hemp and Chloe Kelly, and they're just very tricky wingers. And I was like, it's a big game kind of to move, move into that role. But I felt like maybe having the kind of focus of just uh, looking at Chloe Kelly or or Lauren Hemp because they swapped a bit really felt like it helped Magda be a lot clearer about what she was doing. And I also think something that Chelsea have lost recently or in the past season, I guess maybe when they played a back three is Magda Eriksson is very good at progressing the ball and building out from the back. But at points when she's been that left-sided centre-back, she's not necessarily been the player Chelsea have looked to, to to move the ball forward. But in this game, it was really clear, I think, how important Eriksson was uh, in terms of getting the ball up towards Guru Raisin. And, you know, in the first 20 minutes, that's almost where all of Chelsea's attacks were coming from, the space behind City's right-back, Kirsten Kasparai. Uh, and Eriksson and Guru Raisin were, were absolutely crucial to that. So, yeah, I thought she had a very, very good game. Here's up to Joe pointing out City's dominance. Man City had 12 shots in the first half, the most Chelsea have faced in the opening 45 minutes of a Barclays WSL game since September 2013 versus the now defunct Notts County. Didn't matter though, did it, Liam? Because unlike what we saw at Liverpool last week, Chelsea were ruthless with the, the main chance that came their way. They could have gone one up inside 10 seconds, but when it broke to Kirby just before half time, she put it away with a weaker foot. Yeah, and as, as Jesse said, it, it felt like... Chelsea's likeliest route the whole time was releasing Wrighton in that kind of left channel to to cut back to one of the forwards. And that's exactly where, where the goal comes from. I, I thought up to that point, Chelsea hadn't looked particularly convincing. At, at the moment, I'm not I'm not totally sold on their central midfield. I think Erin Cuthbert's a really good player. I don't know if she's the cleanest fit for that position. And Jesse Fleming, again, a really good player, but it seems to work a little bit better further forward, more as like a 10 than, than as a sitting midfielder. I don't know whether it's just because they're without Melanie Leopold's. They obviously lost Jiso Yun as well. But it feels like they could maybe do with another player, a natural central midfielder. I know they've got Sophie Ingle as well who, who contributed, but she's probably not in her absolute prime now. So I think you, that's probably something Emma Hayes is looking to address longer term. But for now... I thought they they looked after the ball a lot better um, in the second half. They pressed really well against City. They managed to stop them getting the service to Bunny Shaw, who was causing all sorts of problems up front on her own. And then they engineered the chance really well, didn't they? They turned the ball over high, got it to Wrighton and, and Kirby. You can generally rely on her to find a cool collected finish to to break open the game. 
You call it a cool collected finish. Uh, this is what Fran said to Chelsea TV after the game. As long as it goes in, it could be the crappiest shot I've ever done. I don't mind, um, which I liked a lot. Uh, here's the excellent London is Blue pod, which Jesse sometimes features on tweeting. Fran Kirby scored 30 goals and made 19 assists in her last 32 starts in the WSL for Chelsea. Um, just on what Liam was saying about midfield there, Jesse, is that where either Svitkova or Kankovic might, might come into the team? Yeah, I think that that is probably the idea. I mean, Kangovic, I believe, has traditionally played further forward as well. This is part of, you know, Chelsea's glut of number 10s. Uh, but Svitkova can play there too, uh, although equally can play further forward or on the left. And I think it was interesting to see uh, Aaron Cuthbert and Jesse Fleming in this kind of, yeah, double pivot, I guess. Um, we played it, I believe, against Lyon uh, in pre-season and, and it kind of worked well there. But I do agree it it feels like it's not quite right. And I don't know whether this is maybe just me being like an old football man and thinking, but they're both tiny, but that is kind of what I think about it. Uh, And definitely you could see when Bunny Shaw was kind of dropping deeper, she was kind of just steamrollering through them somewhat unsurprisingly because she also steamrolled through Millie Bright, which is something I've never seen a player do before. (laughs) So, yeah, obviously Chelsea wanted to address it, right? This is why there was this world record bid for, for Grasque Oro that, that didn't go through. And uh, and I guess maybe the question is it's not entirely clear when, or I guess even if, we, we expect Melanie Leupoldt's back. You know, obviously uh, she's like kind of away having a baby and that's like totally her prerogative to take as long as, as she needs and, and kind of address that in, in whatever way she wants. So it is, I think, a bit of a, a problem area for Chelsea right now. I prefer Cuthbert and Fleming than than playing Sophie Ingle there, I think. I thought she when she came on, she's a great closer of a game now, but I don't know if she, she offers everything to start. But I think in a match like this where I felt like Chelsea were quite aware that City were going to struggle to progress the ball centrally and it, there was going to be a lot of focus on the flank. So I think we just about got away with that one. Uh, into the second half then, Liam. Chelsea get a penalty. I thought the referee did really well to spot this. I mean, a, lot, a lot of times... We spend panning referees, particularly in the WSL, but the ref did well here. Yeah, maybe I wasn't paying as much attention in that particular moment as I should have been, but I I didn't see it in real time. I just thought it was a blocked shot. And that was partly because I think the angle of the camera and the position of the City player's body was kind of her back to to where we were looking. Um, But when you look at the replay, it's clear as day. And, And I thought it was actually, given that the referee was kind of on the same side as us the spectators I thought it was a really good spot from her and yeah and I was a little bit surprised when uh, the ball was given to Mara Mielda to take it but can't argue with that penalty can you I mean the keeper went the right way and there's just no saving a shot like that so Jesse firstly is Mielda the regular penalty taker and Kirby just took it last week because she wasn't there and B did Kirby do an Azpilicueta and just hold on to the ball for ages to take the pressure off <laughs> soak up the mind games I think that was it I think it, it was a mind games thing from Kirby yeah Mielda has has traditionally been Chelsea's number one I believe the order is if everyone in the squad was available is Mielda Leupoltz harder then so I think Frank Kirby was our fourth choice penalty taker which as a set of penalty takers go is not a bad list at all uh but yeah um I guess because Mara Mielda spent so much time out I I'd kind of forgotten that logically it, it made sense that she did take the penalty and and yeah it was a it was a fantastic one I don't think I've ever seen Mara Mielda miss a penalty for Chelsea so 
Um, her, her penalty taking highlight was was when we played Atletico Madrid in the Champions League a couple of years ago, and Sophie Ingle got sent off after after ten minutes, and Miel just scored penalties basically to get us through that round. Uh, producer Lucy's just put a tweet into the Google Doc that she and I share from a certain at Jesse JPH. Lauren James is brackets, and I can't emphasize this enough. Close brackets, ridiculous. Some of the stuff she's doing now just shouldn't be legal. Tears streaming down the face emoji. Um, she was quite good then, was she? I feel like I'm going to tweet this every time I watch her play, but she's ridiculous. Um, and speaking of players who got bodied off the ball by Bunny Short, Lauren James is the only person who was made, able to do it back. And I think it's a real, you know, testament to the time Chelsea spent on her on getting her fully fit. I mean, look, she's played two games a season. I don't know like whether she is still injury prone or not, but certainly physically, she looks like a totally different player compared to when she was at Manchester United. And and I felt the real turning point in this game was was when Lauren James kind of just got let off the leash a bit. The first half an hour or so, she very much kind of stuck to the to the right wing. And because we weren't really moving the ball around that way, she wasn't seeing much of it. And it feels like there was a point where Emma Hayes was just like, oh, go on then. Like like letting like a dog off in the park or something. And suddenly like James was like all over the pitch, picking up the ball. And it just, it sticks to her feet. And she's so casual. And she'll be doing like all these step overs and tricks and feints and like, her face is just like as if she was going for a stroll to the shops. Like, <laughs> I just, it, she's a ridiculous, ridiculous player. You can tell that her and Reese have grown up shielding the ball from each other. <laughs> it, it's absolutely crazy. It, it is crazy how similar the experience is of watching each of them because I think both of them play at their own pace. They will not be rushed. They they are quick in full flight, but they, they absolutely play at their own slightly deliberate pace, extremely good close control and just a, a really innate understanding of how to use their bodies to protect the ball, to gain an advantage on opponents. And it's just quite funny watching watching people go against Lauren James because they just don't really know what to do with her. It's, it, it's just They're just kind of hoping she makes a mistake because if she doesn't, there isn't really an answer. Yeah, it feels like a goal's coming for her pretty soon. Um, finally, on the game then, then Jesse, have Chelsea got the psychological edge over City now? You know, another win against them in the WSL. But but does that matter? I mean, are City actually going to be a contender this season? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, historically, for me, Chelsea City has kind of always been, or at least in recent years, felt like the big WSL derby I think especially because it felt for a long time like we couldn't quite get the edge over them but I think we're the first team to ever beat City three consecutive times in in the WSL and Gareth Taylor's played us 11 times now and and won once just that Continental Cup final so it does maybe feel like that's kind of kind of moving away from from being such a big game as it was but I still think the history of this fixture and, and the competitiveness between these two teams means that, you know, we contested both domestic trophies against each other last season, right? And won one each. So I think, it, it you know, it remains a big psychological boost for Chelsea to win and obviously was incredibly important too. I think just, you know, I don't think Spurs are very good in the North London derby against Arsenal, but obviously it was it was another big win for Arsenal. And I think it mattered for Chelsea to to get those points on the board. But yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I sort of thought City were a lot better than they were in their first week. So I wouldn't write them off of, of everything just yet. But I agree. I think it seems hard to put them as title challengers right now. 
Well, it's a swift return to action for Chelsea. They take on West Ham at Kings Meadow on Wednesday night. That's a rearranged fixture from match day one. We'll hear all about it on our Thursday pod. Next today, we'll crack open the mailbag. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Apologies, listen, you don't crack open a mailbag, do you? Um, Liam, you're the wordsmith. Is it just open the mailbag? Draw it open? I don't know. You can crack open a beer while you're opening the mailbag. <laughs> okay, let's go with that, that then. Works. I mean... As we record, it's 10.29 on a Monday. Yeah, maybe so not now. Probably not quite now, but listener, uh, you feel free uh, to do what you've got to do. We asked you for some questions. We've got loads of them. Um, we're going to start with a few on Graham Potter, largely because Liam and Simon have done a, an excellent big read on The Athletic all about how Potter is getting on in his first couple of weeks at Chelsea. Um, here's Alistair who says, what are some realistic expectations for Potter? Given Tuchel when the Champions League then was sacked essentially a year later, it seems hard to feel convinced that Potter will last if we win nothing this season and don't impress at the beginning of next, surely. Um, Liam, it always was Champions League is the bare minimum requirement. Is that the same? Do we believe that Todd Bowley and co have got a bit more patience? Yeah, I think we have to clarify that Tuchel wasn't sacked primarily because he wasn't meeting expectations. It wasn't an Abramovich era sacking in that sense. He was sacked because primarily he wasn't clicking with the owners and the way they wanted to run the club. And Potter has been brought in because the owners feel that he will uh, fit more cleanly with what they want to do. So in that sense, I think there will be a tolerance for transition. That doesn't mean that Chelsea aren't competitive, but I think there's a recognition that they're not going to win the league this year, especially when you look at how Manchester City have started and Erling Haaland just looks like he's completed English football already. Um, <laughs> so that it, within that context, I think yeah, top four remains the minimum target. It's always been the minimum target in recent years, especially with all the money Chelsea have, have spent. It would be a huge disappointment, a huge setback in terms of the books if they didn't secure Champions League football. And beyond that, you know, the, the expectation at Chelsea is to compete and, and Potter will be trying to go as deep as he can in the cup competitions. If he can match Tuchel's achievement of getting to some domestic cup finals and and maybe, well, they're a little bit behind the eight ball on this one, but um, a good Champions League run as well would help. And beyond that, just showing signs of progress in terms of performance, in terms of developing individual players, in terms of developing the collective style of play. I think that's what the owners are looking for. But he's got a delicate balance to strike because he has to do all these sort of holistic things to use the Man City owner's lexicon. 
in terms of being the the coaching head of the club, but he's also got to win, as all head coaches have to do. Um, and if he doesn't, then the situation could change. But I think top four at the moment is the only sort of red line. Yeah, not exactly helpful on that domestic cups front to get Man City away uh, in the first round of the Carabao Cup that Chelsea are participating in. Here's a couple I'll pass to you, Jesse. Uh, Prasanna says, is Potter Tuchel 2.0? Potter's Brighton have the same issues as Tuchel's Chelsea. Lots of possession, underperforming XG, forwards not scoring goals, to which Nick adds, how do you think Graham Potter will go about solving Chelsea's problems in attack? Uh, It's a difficult question, but the good news is if you get this right, there's probably a job on Potter's staff for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think in terms of addressing whether it, Potter is, is Tuchel 2.0, I think, I mean, broadly, there aren't many, I think, coaches in in high-level men's football who I would say are much more similar to, to Thomas Tuchel than Graham Potter is in, in terms of how he wants to play. And I guess that kind of speaks to what, to what Liam says about the sacking of Tuchel and the appointment of Potter not necessarily being, you know, purely about stuff on, on the football pitch and, and underperformance and things like that. Um, and I think in some ways that feels like potentially quite a good thing going forward, right? You're not having to rip up everything for your for your players and kind of start again barely a, a two months into the season or so. Uh, you've got the opportunity to build on stuff. I think in terms of, of fixing the attack, yeah. I mean, Potters Brighton definitely weren't always the most uh, exhilarating attacking team, but they definitely had their moments. And I think generally when we talk about Potter's Brighton, it's mainly about the failure to find a striker who could actually finish. Now, Chelsea don't necessarily have those in, in abundance, but it certainly wasn't the case that there were players not getting chances. It was more that maybe when those chances were were few and far between, um, you couldn't necessarily rely on players like Neil Mopé to to put the ball in the back of the net. I think, you know, Aubameyang will be a really interesting piece in that puzzle. We've not seen him, seen what he's going to look like really as a Chelsea player. And obviously in his time at time at Arsenal, he struggled to to create opportunities. But certainly in in his, you know, brief spell at Barcelona, he he found the back of the net when when there was service provided to him. So I think if Potter can can kind of get that service there. There are there are certainly a higher level of players uh, in those attacking positions to to make the most of those opportunities. Uh, here's one from Donev asking, who's a player that wasn't playing much, but you think could get lots of playing time under Potter? I'm going to link this, Liam, to Tom's question too, which is what's going on with Chalaba? Baffled as to why he's being involved in talks of a move away. Um, Liam, he played in a new role in that behind closed doors, friendly against Brighton, as mentioned in, in yours and Simon's piece. Yeah, we've been told that Potter sees him um, as a potential number six at the base of midfield, as well as as a as a ball playing defender. Now, that's something he's played pretty extensively in his career to date. I think in his season on loan at Lorient, he was in midfield. I think at, when he was at Huddersfield, the same. So it was only really Tuchel that only saw Chalabur, um as a ball playing, ball carrying defender. And increasingly towards the end of his time, he didn't see him as anything, um, or at least certainly not anything worth starting regularly. So that's one of the little tweaks we could see under Potter, but of course there's plenty of competition in that area of the pitch. We haven't heard anything substantial to suggest Chalabra is actively looking for a move away, but it would kind of make sense that if he doesn't play in the next six weeks or so, he he will be assessing his options. I don't think he's going to be alone in that. You know, in conversations I was having last week, 
ahead of the piece that we put together on Potter. You know, they've they've got 13 games between October the 1st and November the 12th. It is really a sprint. And if you are not one of the players who is involved in that run of games, you kind of know where you stand, don't you? Um, and I think that that will be clarifying for some people on the on the on the edges of this squad. And then post World Cup, we could well see that group of players looking to take action to improve their situations. Yeah, the World Cup's the big X factor in all of this, uh, isn't it? Here's Christian echoing the thoughts of Simon in his piece on Chelsea's lack of leaders. He has thoughts on time for a change in captaincy as symbolic of a new era. Um, Jesse, it's a difficult one to do mid-season, isn't it? And we, we've seen a lot of Azpilicueta of late. I think there's a, a kind of school of thought from Chelsea supporters that, well, just make Mason Mount or Rhys James the captain. But Mount's in no kind of form and, and that wouldn't send a great message to Azpilicueta, Silva or Jorginho. Do you think there will be a, a change of captaincy anytime soon? I mean, I don't think it's something that, that necessarily makes sense. I mean... I can see how maybe, you know, symbolically changing it and then having a leader who's maybe going to feature more on the pitch as, as kind of as Blaquetta, it feels like it's not been a great start to the season for him. I don't feel like he's someone who you really want to see kind of starting lots of games and things like that. But I've kind of always personally felt that like captaincies don't have to be the sole thing that delineates leaders. And I think that there's, a there's you know, more of an issue that, why can't players kind of step up and and be more part of a leadership group regardless of who who wears the armband? Does taking it off as Blaquetta and suddenly giving it to someone else kind of yeah, say you give it to Mason Mount, is that really gonna gonna transform the player he is? Like I don't I don't really see that. And I think, you know, the thing with Mason Mount and Reese James, which I guess is kind of interesting, is they're both great players and, and obviously kind of as as Academy boys, I understand like the call there, but I'm not sure if I've ever seen either of them as as really, at least right now, feeling like obvious captaincy options, just because I feel like in the way that they kind of play and contribute, maybe it's because I see them as being kind of like more individually creative players. It feels like it never quite goes with with the image, I guess, of, you know, having Terry and then Azpilicueta as these kind of players who stand up. I feel like I always associate kind of Chelsea captains in that mould. So I don't think it would really make sense to take it off Azpilicueta, especially because... Presumably, it's not like he's going to be here for another five years as captain, is it? So, what's the rush? You know, like Mount and James are both in their early twenties. James is now signed for the next six years. Um, if Chelsea's new owners have their way, Mount will follow. They're going to captain Chelsea at some point. It's not an if; it's a when. And I, why would you? strip Aspilicueta of the armband when he's done absolutely nothing to deserve that. He's been nothing but a an excellent ambassador for the club and risk causing problems in the dressing room. Uh, it, it doesn't really make sense. There, there aren't any problems with the hierarchy in, in the dressing room at the moment. I don't think Mountain James are side-eyeing Aspilicueta <laughs> or Thiago Silva and just being like, you don't deserve that. You know, it's our time now. That That isn't the way these guys are thinking. So I think... There's just fundamentally no need. They, Mount has already worn the armband a couple of times. I'm sure he'll get the odd opportunity here and there from now on. It will happen for James at some point too, I'm sure. And the other thing Jesse said is is perfectly true. And I think you get the same answer from Graham Potter or a lot of coaches you talk to. Every good team has players that take responsibility all over the pitch. 
you know, if you ask a coach, the cliche would be we need 11 leaders. I mean, in reality, they don't have that, but they do really good teams have five or six really strong characters as that sort of Chelsea core that is always lionized under Mourinho did. They had five or six leaders who could have worn the armband, but didn't need to in order to be leaders on the pitch. And I think that that's the key thing. Uh, while we're talking about Azpilicueta, uh, Liam, Sam says, who was the main force behind him getting a new contract, Tuchel or the board? As the owners, yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I don't think Tuchel wasn't saying, oh, you have to leave. But I think it was pretty clear from the defensive reinforcements that Tuchel was asking for, from the way the playing time sort of shook out in the second half of last season, that Azpilicueta was slowly phasing out of being a regular starter. Um, I don't think he was delighted about that because Azpilicueta still feels like he can play every week. He really looks after himself. You know, Fans will have their own opinions on whether that's true or not, but of course he's a, he's a professional footballer. He's going to back himself. But Todd Bowley and 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 Bedalek Bali and the other the other owners, I think they really value Aspilaqueta as as a character, as an influence, and they saw no need to to lose him, especially when Barcelona weren't putting any money on the table to take him off off their hands. And Aspilaqueta, I think he, I think he would have liked to have gone. I, I, I think there's no secret there. It it felt like a, a a good time to to end his Chelsea chapter, but. He was happy to stay. He's never going to cause an issue. And the only important thing for him, the only thing I think he was worried about was whether it would imperil his chances of being in the Spain squad for the World Cup. And he's he's involved in Luis Enrique's group right now. So it looks like he's on track for that. But it was the owners rather than Tuchel. And I think he will be he will be someone who, who will be involved under Potter, I think. All right, well, let's finish uh, with one on international football. It comes from at Matt Davis Adams asking if England shouldn't ditch Mr. Buzzkill, Gareth Southgate, and just replace him with noted deluxe cup specialist Thomas Tuchel for the World Cup. Uh, as we record on Monday morning, Fakayo Tomori has been excluded from the 23 man squad to face Italy tonight. Simon Johnson tweets England are giving Tomori 2020 hashtag CFC vibes. Um, Jesse, has my idea got any merit or is it absolute nonsense? Should, should we just get Tuchel in? for Qatar I'm obsessed with your idea I've been telling people about it all weekend Matt <laughs> I love it yeah I think we all know the reality is that Gareth Southgate will go to Qatar and we'll probably have to watch a, a load of dross and it'll be a sad ending to, to what's been a um, you know a great a great bit of his tenure but I think that's just the nature of international management isn't it sometimes you know I mean what Gareth Southgate has achieved you can't really ignore it you kind of have to let the man uh, bury his own grave I think but yeah I would I would love a Thomas Tuchel England team that would be absolutely fantastic um yeah if if that's what he needs to stay in the country now his <laughs> post-brexit visa is running out um, i'm all for it or may, maybe italy just take tamori on loan with an option to buy him <laughs> and then he becomes like the core of their next european championship winning defense do you think tuka will go into international management at any point Liam? presumably his next job's a, a club gig at any point yes but he <laughs> It's kind of unusual for guys who are operating at his level, these super intense coaches that are at the cutting edge of European football tactics. They don't generally go into international management at this stage of their careers. I think Conte was kind of the exception of that. What what you often get is guys like Southgate who haven't made massive waves in, cl- in the club game and kind of worked their way up to a position in international management or elder statesmen 
um, who are kind of done at club level and, and, and want want something that's intense every three months rather than every day. I think Tuchel is so intense that he would be tearing his hair out if he if he couldn't work with players every single day and didn't have a game every week. Uh, that's just my feel on it. And I think he will have pretty attractive club jobs at some at some point in the next few months. All right, some great questions there. Thank you to everybody who sent them in. Apologies if we didn't get to yours, but we do appreciate them. Uh, before we go, some Chelsea content on The Athletic for you. Simon's got a piece up lamenting Chelsea's lack of leaders and comparing Mourinho's and droppables to the class of 2022. And we've mentioned the big read that Simon and Liam have teamed up on about Graham Potter. Liam, I wanted to give you the chance to plug your piece on Callum Hudson-Odoi's impressive start to life at Leverkusen too. Yeah, so we didn't want to... We didn't want to over-egg it. I mean, he's played five games uh, and it, it, the the baseline stats don't jump out at you. He's got one assist and no goals. But if you take a closer look at what he's done in those games, he has carried a more consistent threat. Interestingly, he's been used as a number 10 quite a bit uh, rather than on the left wing, um, which is actually a position that he played extensively in his youth career for Chelsea and for England. And he's done pretty well there. He's, I think the the signature performance so far was against Atletico Madrid. Leverkusen have had a really poor start to the season, but they had a great Champions League win over Atletico. And Hudson-Odoi kind of played the pass before the pass for both goals. So it, it's, it's an encouraging start. And the most important thing of all is he started four matches in a row, which he only did twice in five seasons at Chelsea. So there, there are already signs that this loan can be what he's been waiting for, for for far too long, which is a chance to just play regularly and and feel like he's got a chance to build rhythm. And we can maybe find out finally how good he can be. Yeah, really good read. Go and check that out. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod, the place to go to sign up if you aren't currently a subscriber. That'll do us for today. Then on Thursday, we'll talk about that uh, CFCW game against West Ham. Jesse's going to leave us a voice note live from Kings Meadow. We'll also be building up to the Dom Derby. So Dom Fife will be with us to preview Chelsea versus Crystal Palace as the Premier League returns. Thanks for joining us today, though. Bye for now. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.